This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. The current incidence of anorexia nervosa is around 8 per 100,000 people per year in this country and is associated with a high rate of mortality. Here with more on this and how and why people lose their ability to want to eat is Patrick Sweeney. He's a Ph.D. student in Upstate's College of Graduate Studies. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So anorexia nervosa remains a big problem in this country, and you've been studying the relationship between emotion and appetite. Tell us about that. Tell us about this whole thing called feeding behavior that you've been looking at. Right. Uh, So as we know, feeding is an essential behavior. We all eat every day. We need to eat in order to survive. So because of this, feeding is regulated by a wide variety of factors. So some of this are genetic. There's many genetic factors that can regulate your feeding behavior, but there's also environmental factors. Let me stop you there for a second. When you say genetic factors... What do you exactly mean? Do you mean someone is born with a predisposition to eating a certain way or a certain amount or something of that nature? Exactly. Yeah. So if someone um, if someone has obesity, then their siblings or their um, children are more likely to become obese. So and you're a- suggesting that that's because of an actual genetic relationship there right. as opposed to yeah. habits that you develop over life. Right. Yeah, there is definitely a genetic factor that is involved, but it's a complicated factor and there's a lot of work being done to look into that. Um, But there's also, as we know, a strong environmental factor. And this is apparent, as we can see, in the prevalence of fast food and uh, in society. So the availability of fast food has led to an extreme increase in obesity over the last decade or so. And if you look at the statistics... That has skyrocketed over the last 10 or 15 years. So this is an example of an environmental influence that can lead to an increasing rate of obesity, for example. How about things like exercise? There's been some talk over the years that as we become more um, less mobile or less active because things are made so much easier for us, we all drive as opposed to having to exactly. walk. So Exactly. That's... That's definitely another factor. That's one of the reasons why you see, like with Michelle Obama, there's a big drive um, to see increased exercise. There's a number of initiatives out there just to drive for increased exercise. That's another environmental influence um, that is involved in your feeding behavior. So energy expenditure is another factor that influences food intake. The more active you are, um, the more food intake you need to eat. But what about this idea of, you know, this idea of, you know, eating is a basic need? To survive, you must eat. How does that affect, you know, whether you eat for, you know, because you you, you, um, eat to live versus you live to eat? Because some people eat for pleasure, and that seems to overtake perhaps the instinct to just eat in order to stay alive. Right. Um, So the literature kind of says there's, there's two main factors that govern food intake. So one is homeostatic control of food intake. So when you're hungry, for example, there are brain regions or brain circuits that will drive you to consume food. And when you're full, there are also brain regions or brain circuits that will drive you to stop eating. And this is, you can sort of think of it as a a thermostat or a switch that will drive you to either stop eating or 
to eat. And actually in humans, um, this is thought to be not the main mechanism for driving food because we we're lucky enough that we have food available everywhere, right? So in, in the past, early on in evolution, this was the main mechanism because we didn't have food available everywhere. But now we, we do have food everywhere. So you're saying that kind of genet or that kind of natural um, thermostat doesn't play as much of a role in today's world because of the accessibility of food. So what plays the bigger role here? Well, it's thought that in, in humans, the major driver behind food intake nowadays is either there's a habitual driver, so we eat by habit, or we also eat by hedonic reward. So there's been much work recently into the fact that food is a rewarding, uh, is rewarding. So, it's, so we eat for pleasure? Right. So you may go to um, whatever your favorite food is, whether it's fast food like McDonald's or ice cream. We've all experienced the fact that eating that food gives us a reward. We get pleasure in that eating that food. So that can actually drive you or motivate you to consume food. Well, one can understand how that might play a role in something like obesity, but how does it then play a role, if at all, in something like anorexia where you are denying yourself food? Well, that's, that's a little complicated, but presumably you could think that these people lose the ability to get pleasure from eating food. So in disorders like depression, for example, one of the main symptoms is it's called anhedonia. So they lose pleasure from circum from situations that are normal, normally rewarding. So for someone who has anorexia, for, for normal individuals, eating a donut or eating ice cream is rewarding. They like that. But for someone with anorexia, it's the exact opposite, that there is nothing worse in the world for these individuals than... Um, eating something like a donut. So there is, we believe that the brain circuits that govern uh, hedonic reward are miswired in these individuals. And that's what we look into. So you think they actually become miswired or they, or they start out as being miswired? I mean, is there some theory there in terms of how this all occurs? It's probably, um, it's probably both. It's probably a relationship between a, a strong genetic component, but also obviously an environmental component. So stress probably plays a role. Emotion states play a role. Um, obviously, in, in Western society, where there's such a drive to be thin, um, this has a factor for people developing anorexia. You can see in the fact that anorexia is much more prevalent in females than it is in males. That right there gives you an idea that there's probably an environmental or social component as well. So basically what you're saying is that there's a genetic... And, a, and an environmental, those factors all play a role in how you end up in terms of your eating patterns. But how does emotion affect appetite specifically? And what exactly did you find or in your study? But before you go there, I just want to say, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Patrick Sweeney. We're talking about the link of emotion and appetite and eating disorders. Right. So you just published a study. Yep. In the Journal of Science, Nature Communications. Tell us about that. So in that paper, we, we wanted to try to determine how emotion affects food intake. And we know that emotion and food intake have a bidirectional relationship. So food intake can affect emotion, and emotion can affect food intake. So an example of that, like I said before, when you eat food, it can give you rewarding satisfaction. It can change your emotion state. And the other end of the spectrum, emotion states like stress 
can affect your food intake. So when you're stressed, you can either eat less. We've probably all experienced when we've been stressed and it's affect our appetite. Or actually on the opposite, when you're stressed, you can eat more. So you can drive yourself to try to eat these rewarding hedonic foods to try to cope with the stressor. So like the, comfort food comfort is the word food, that exactly. everyone's talking about. So what were you attempting to do? What was your hypothesis, and what exactly did you do in your study? So we focused on a brain region. It's called the ventral hippocampus. And this brain region is long thought to be involved in emotion. And there's been some previous work that also has shown that it's involved in feeding. And we wanted to determine how this brain region is involved in both feeding behavior and emotion. So what we did is we um, determined how this brain region controls feeding behavior. So we determined that it controls feeding behavior by projecting to a brain region called the lateral septum. So this lateral septum brain region, you can think of it as kind of a, a brain hub. So it's kind of like Grand Central Station. It receives inputs from a number of different brain regions that convey uh, information about where you are in space, conveys um, emotional input, and then it sends this information to brain regions that control feeding. So we think that this circuit is involved in, in responses to changes in emotion, adaptively um, changing your food intake to respond to that change in emotion state. So what we're doing now... So you were working with, not with humans, you were working mice. in a mouse model, right? Exactly. Just give us a, a brief thumbnail of what you did with these mice. What did sure. you do? So what we do is we, we start by manipulating. So we activate, or we use techniques to activate or inhibit neurons or individual brain regions and to see how these brain regions control feeding. So you can turn on or off in certain ways certain parts of the mouse's brain this in, within this region that you're talking about right. and see if how that what you stimulate affects what they do. Is that correct? Exactly. And then we go and we do the opposite. So we can actually then induce anxiety, so induce emotional states and see how that change affects feeding behavior and how that change affects these brain regions that we're studying. So what we want to eventually determine is the bidirectional relationship. So how do these brain regions control feeding and control emotion? And then how does changes in emotion control these brain regions? So you are really looking for the actual underpinnings, the structural and functional underpinnings within the brain the mechanisms within the brain that control or affect the things that we've observed in behavior over all these years, such as you described earlier. So, for example, if you're stressed, that you either eat more or less. What you're attempting to do is actually find the, the regions or the mechanisms within a brain that actually makes that happen. Right, exactly. So how did you, I mean, what did you actually find? in doing this, turning on and off certain regions of the brain? So we found that um, brain regions, some of these same brain regions that are classically, classically from decades, been shown to be involved in emotion and stress, it turns out that they're actually also involved in feeding behavior. So, so they, they have, share? They share the same function. And these stress-related brain regions send 
projections. So in the brain, you can think of the brain as an electrical circuit. So the brain sends electrical circuit connections to different brain regions. So these emotional brain regions send circuit connections to, to feeding-related brain regions. And it turns out that these connections have a major influence in controlling feeding behavior. And that had not been reported before. Can we draw an analogy from a mouse model to the human model? I don't want to run out of time. I want to just get to that point. Well, is, there, is that a strong connection? Well, the, the good thing about the, the brain regions and circuits that we're studying is that they're very well conserved across many species. So these brain regions exist in mice, rats, primates, like um, chimpanzees, and they also exist in humans. So they, you can generalize some of these findings, or at least they were a good beginning. They're a good beginning to a certain, to a certain extent. Certainly you have to do similar experiments in, in, in humans as well. So just to get to the point before we have to stop, well, how will this have impact, if at all, this kind of, these kinds of findings on helping with clinical problems like anorexia nervosa or overeating issues? Well, we think that maybe it'll shed light into potential mechanisms that may be involved in how stress predisposes individuals to anorexia. Um, and maybe by understanding these neural circuits, you may be able to more appropriately develop drug targets by instead of targeting drugs for the whole brain, you could selectively target drugs for individual neural circuits. That's very, very interesting and very hopeful. So I give you a lot of credit for this kind of work, and I hope that you'll continue along these lines. It sounds like it's very, very um, hopeful information. And, and perhaps, as you said, some very specific drugs could come out of this. Thank you so very much for coming in. My guest Thanks has been me. Patrick Sweeney. He's a Ph.D. student in Upstate's College of Graduate Studies. I'm Lydia Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.